0: Warning, the following episode of Seriously Wrong takes latent potentiality and makes it explicit. <laughs>
1: Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by all that was, all that is now, and all that ever will be.
0: Here at the was, is, and ever will be trans-dimensional library of everything, we strive to ensure that everything is properly and diligently recorded so we have a complete collection of all that was, is, and ever will be. Mr. Was, Is, and Ever, Will, Be. The results from the history expedition aren't looking good. Uh, history is being generated faster than
1: we can capture you don't it. don't talk to Mr. What, Is, Was, and Ever, Will, Be. That. that our mission is that nothing is <laughs> lost, sir, we're going to
0: have ever. to upgrade the servers in the What, Will, Be and the What, Is sections imminently. They just can't can't hold the amount of data that's coming in we from the to sensors, collect it all. We have a total server failure on Galaxy 32A, Universe B, Timeline 220. So fix it. I'm
1: trying, Look, sir. time is not moving any slower. History keeps being creative. The only universal constant is change. Nothing lasts, but we make sure that nothing is lost understand me i understand yes (laughs) sorry sir all that was is and ever will be proud sponsor of seriously wrong hello everyone
0: and welcome back to the seriously wrong podcast we are your
1: co-hosts the wrong boys i'm sean i'm aaron So, library socialism.
0: Yeah, library socialism. It's something we've been mentioning a lot on the show recently. We've been asked to clarify and elaborate what is meant by this like
1: libraries and socialism go together already libraries are a proto-socialist element of the current society and also it's just i feel like it's a good way for people to get a feel for what you want the experience of socialism to be like
0: that reminds me there's this thinking tool i think i got from robert anton wilson i don't think he made it up but it was in one of his books it's the word po p-o it's like a thought tool it means think about the relationship between these two things, to put things next to each other, to invoke thought and analysis from it. So you could say, like for example, climate change, po capitalism. Right. That's a jumping off point to thinking about what's the relationship between capitalism and climate change and so on. So I'd really like to encourage people, socialism, po libraries, what's the relationship there? Or what are potential relationships? What are ways you can think about these things? So I thought maybe a good way to get into library socialism, what it means is to start by talking a little bit about how I came to become a library socialist way back in the old days, 2014, 2012, 2011. Pre-library socialist, Sean, walking around 2011. Early developing political consciousness, a lot to learn about the world. And I became really fascinated with this political project out of Sweden, which I participated in for a few years, the Pirate Party, sort of an offshoot of the Pirate Bay, basically a file-sharing advocacy political party that's primary goal was to secure net neutrality, secure access to the internet, tied up into the sort of techno-utopian vision of the internet as a great platform of ideas that would connect the world, help to overthrow dictators, and so on. Yeah. But at the heart of that was this idea that file sharing like napster the pirate bay was actually a positive thing in society that it wasn't the crime that it was made out to be by governments and and corporations and that idea just like it's so profoundly because i was a avid file sharer as a young person who didn't have any money to spend to be able to access the things that i wanted to access anyways so there was a real like emotional feeling behind it like how awesome it is to just like get the music you want to listen to
1: without having to, like, save up for it.
0: It was a really revolutionary, awesome thing when I was, like, 14.
1: Yeah, for me, the music thing was amazing, but, like, when I first learned you could download TV shows, that was so huge for me because, like... I think DVRs existed at the time, but the idea that I could just have the show and watch it whenever you wanted, that there was no schedule, you don't have to watch it on TV when it's on, Which you could like buy DVDs, that was kind of coming in around the same time. But like, I don't have to try and tape it and like setting VCRs to, it sounds like old people now, (laughs) I used to set my VCR to tape my TV show. It's like program start and stop times and then fast forward through the commercials. (laughs)
0: and I'm sure there's older people listening like oh these young kids yeah if we missed an episode of a show we just missed it I remember when VCRs cost $600 and only my rich friend's family had (laughs) one and the thing I really liked about the pirate party was that it was radical but it was outside the contemporary sort of frame it wasn't like a cultural flashpoint it wasn't strongly coded as left or right in itself and that's reflected in the pirate parties around the world some are more centrist some are more left-wing and it was always sort of an alliance to some degree between different elements of libertarian leftists and libertarian rightists yeah right so i was involved in communications for the pirate party of canada organizing I was elected leader twice at different times.
1: Yeah, you were the leader of like the whole national party.
0: I was the youngest political party leader in Canada at the time. It's an early political experience. And I learned a lot, but it was a real nightmare. Robert's Rules of Order is Shout out Robert's Rules of Order. (laughs) Shout out to Robert's Rules of Order over IRC. It's a match made in hell. The thing about Robert's Rules of Order, I'll say real quick before we move on, is it's not a deliberative mechanism. It's a mechanism which is intended to be used and only can be used by small groups of people who gamify it, use the bureaucracy to keep dissenting voices out, and ram through their agenda. That's the function of Robert's Rules of Order. And any attempt to use Robert's Rules of Order in good faith is just going to be a fucking nightmare. Robert's (laughs) Rules of Order has existed for a long time and been successful because everyone secretly knows you use it that way. If I had just done that in the Pirate Party, the Pirate Party might not be deregistered in Canada now. (laughs) Um... but i left the pirate party but by the time i left my favorite narrative was this idea of the internet as a library because it like just clicked at some point that we had this technological potential that we were using in this stilted way and we were actually using the law to repress our own technological potential to live in a more utopian and perfect world that is the utopian and perfect world where you can access any information you want books textbooks music movies television shows the complete cumulative expression of humanity from the beginning of time is now literally in our pockets and The fact that it was not being tapped into intentionally, like this is an opportunity, this is a technological opportunity for humanity to step up to another level, to become a better species, a more complete species, a more human species. And it was an opportunity that we were rejecting because of these like rigid
1: government bureaucracies, the influence of corporations on government. And this is how like file sharing became prevalent in my political development as I was going along, as it was being used as an example of the way that our technology has outpaced the usefulness of market economics because we've created this thing where it's actually just easier to give everything away for free because it's so easy to replicate things and send them around to other people that we have to create all these artificial barriers and you have to make it illegal for people to send files to each other. You have to set up paywalls in order to stop people from getting like it's actually harder to put something online behind a paywall just from a sort of like raw coding person like now there's websites easy to do either way but like it takes a lot more work to embed a video behind a paywall that like checks to make sure you actually paid for it blah 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 so we're doing all this extra work to squeeze our current technology into the market system when we have reproductive capacities for this particular type of commodity, I guess, to produce it at zero marginal cost or near zero marginal cost. So it just makes the most sense to give it away for free to have the library of like human art and cultural production could exist in a comprehensive form. And that idea has always been super attractive to me, like just having everything together. And I'm like, we have all of it and it's here, you know, like this massive one library of everything humans have made.
0: Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by the multi-billion dollar industry of limiting human potential. What do intellectual property lawyers and tech monopolies have in common? Answer, they both want to fundamentally destroy the greatest tool for distribution of human knowledge in history and limit it permanently for their own profit.
1: Mr. Adman, with the spread of wireless networks and global high-speed internet and handheld devices and global connectivity, it seems like it would make sense to put the entire repository of human knowledge and culture at the fingertips of every human being alive and use our technology to help them interface with the vast stores of information and wisdom that humanity has collected over the ages and is our common heritage, right?
0: Sharp question, the answer is absolutely not. There's multiple layers of tech monopoly in between the universal utopian, la da access to human knowledge and therefore obviously potential. These are for-profit tech companies that are manufacturing these devices. Their incentives aren't necessarily to connect you to human knowledge. Their incentive is to keep you using these tech monopoly websites over and over and over again, even at the expense of your well-being to serve ads to you so that's, that's totally different
1: yeah but don't you think it would be a better use of human potential instead of putting people to work limiting the access to our collective wisdom and instead creating new ways for people to engage with this information and making it digestible and relevant in a contemporary context and translating that vast source into an ever churning sea of new cultural presentations and engagements all available to everybody for free is that within the realm of
0: potentiality absolutely not that makes no sense obviously we have the highest speed internet in human history with the highest capacity but there's a tech monopoly or oligopoly nearby that's going to charge you by the gigabyte for that so not exactly free, even if you can totally release copyright. Oh, that stuff about engaging sorta of weird, I'm gonna skip it. Human potential has to be fundamentally limited, and this is the sort of stuff that you figure out as you get older. It's it's our duty on earth to have a multi billion dollar industry of people who are paid much better than your parents. The people who do the intellectual property enforcement and run these tech monopolies. They got families at home, they got kids. You're talking about taking food? out of their kids' mouths, getting them out of a job, getting them on the street with a bindle. It's not gonna happen. We need to have these people, bindleless in offices, working to suppress fundamentally human potential forever. Go fuck yourself. Whoa, precocious. Okay, get out of here, kid, get out of here. Well, it just brings me solace at the end of the day to know that the cost of that child getting the education that he would need to overthrow me and my twisted order is beyond his reach. The multi-billion dollar industry of limiting human potential. Proud sponsor of today's show. I just remembered, I think I know the moment where I started moving more sharply to the left. And it was around the time of Occupy. Like I really liked Occupy, but I saw Occupy as a little bit broader than just being left-wing in that same sort of way. Like in retrospect, there was like the Ron Paul libertarians there. There There's this general sort of anti-authoritarian. Thing That came up at the different camps. But there was a speech that Zizek gave at Occupy Wall Street. He used the metaphor of red ink, talking about red ink being our capacity to criticize the world as it currently is. And he's like, we need to create our new red inks for the modern era when we're describing this perfect other world. Back in my day, we called that other world communism, but you can call it whatever you want. And in that moment, it sort of clicked for me like, oh, yeah, I am thinking about this other world all the time. And back in the day, they called it communism, but who cares? Like it was a formative sort of because the tension with dealing with the internal politics of the Pirate Party, there was a really intense tension that came out of myself and the others that had more leftist tendencies in the Canadian Pirate Party and those who were pointedly centrist and like respectability politics, bureaucrats, and actually some people that I would consider in that category, I was able to become friends with outside of the context of politics and stuff, but also the literal sort of like rightists and like conspiracy theory, right-wing people. There's a lot of tension that comes out of that. Like someone whose interest in the Pirate Party seems to be fixated and in retrospect I've got a different read of this now than I did back then, but someone's primary contribution to the pirate party is trying to convince us to be so hardline on free speech that we make statements against persecuting Holocaust deniers, which at the time seemed like a a liberal principled kind of edgy. Did you guys put
1: out that statement? Is that a thing that happened? No, no, we didn't. Yeah. but, But it was argued for or whatever by someone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think my position on it was like, yeah, sure.
1: Right. we're in favor of free speech. Right. But
0: now I'm like, wow, actually, that was probably just a Nazi. Yeah. So that internal tension within the party, they didn't like the library narrative. They preferred the more like rights based narratives and stuff like that. But the library narrative really captured me. And it sort of introduced me to the idea also of post scarcity the idea that we don't actually have a scarcity of, for example, music or. Books like we have a scarcity of physical books, but we don't have a scarcity of the information within books being replicated. You can just copy and paste. Yeah, you can send each other songs over Facebook Messenger and download the MP3s to your own computers while still keeping it. It's not a zero sum
1: thing to replicate that information. As you mentioned, post scarcity, and that's been like a central theme of my politics pretty much since I started caring about politics. Cause like I came at this stuff from the zeitgeist movement, which was also similarly had this tension of like conspiracy people being involved, but then also people who are just really into fully automated luxury communism, though we didn't use that name. It's funny too because like I also kind of thought that I was outside of the political binary in a sense, because that was kind of the party line of the Zeitgeist movement was that it's nonpartisan, it's not left, it's not right, it's different from everything else. And it would contrast itself from communism, with just like quick general statements about USSR and like oh that didn't go well and like you know it's was, isn't it a ton of analysis there, but like it was just it was interesting to me that I had all these political ideas before I knew it was basically repackaged libertarian socialism, like left anarchists, like the I'd say ninety percent of what you can get out of Zeitgeist movement materials is libertarian socialism. There's a few different like hardline points where there's like the replacing politics with science stuff. It doesn't matter. It's mostly libertarian socialism, but I just didn't know it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting in, in retrospect. In those early stages, I didn't really like read many political books or even like political opinion pieces. There wasn't like the socialist article network the way that there is now there was no current affairs jacobin and stuff there was no commune mag it was all people that I had met responding to news articles from CNN on their personal Facebook. Like, that was my discourse cycle or and, like, right. the debates that we had within the Pirate Party. And, yeah, I didn't really know much about, like, libertarian socialism either. But I found just through the disagreements I was having, in retrospect, there was an unconscious sort of libertarian socialist right. element to it. And, and even just in the fundamental way of... No, this like freedom from interference stuff sounds pretty good, but I think you got to counterbalance it with some freedom to stuff. Not even that articulate. It's interesting the way that people get into politics and how it changes over time and what changes and what stays the same and like things that are given to you at different times and stuff like that. And if you're interested to hear ours, we have five years of Podcast. Some of it would completely make me cringe to re listen to, but that's because I was like younger and stuff. But hey, $6 a month, get to hear the development. Someone told me recently that listening
1: to the development. Was why they love the show. So if you don't love the show already, go back and listen to every episode and then you will. <laughs> it's like Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, that's all podcasts are kind of like that, right? You're like, mm, I listened mm-hmm. to five
0: or six episodes. I have to start liking it now. Do you remember? I was going to maybe talk about Bookchin from Post Scarcity.
1: So the, yeah, and I got introduced to Murray Bookchin because post-scarcity was something it was a phrase that zeitgeist used a lot someone discovers oh there's this book post-scarcity anarchism gets posted up i read like a third of it and i was like oh yeah this is just like the stuff we always talk about except written way earlier this is cool but i never finished it and then i remember mentioning book Chin to you on the show once, post-scarcity anarchism By Murray Bookchin. Bookchin? Murray Bookchin. (laughs) Does he have like... A book on his chin? Yeah, or like the book came out of his chin, or his
0: book (laughs) is the shape of a chin, or his chin is the shape of a book. Yeah, I think that's episode 20. Yeah. So Bookchin describes, it's not his idea, but I was introduced to it by Bookchin, the idea of usufruct. All right, class, please return to your desks. Snack break is over. Artemis, thank you. All right, class, today's word of the day. You know, I'm a word geek. I love words. Usufruct. Usufruct. Does anyone know what usufruct means? Jeffrey? I don't. Thanks, Jeffrey. In order to explain this correctly, I need to go back to the establishment of civil law, which obviously was codified out of ancient Rome, but was popularized in its modern form in Europe. still has influence on a lot of jurisdictions today. Under civil law, property rights were considered to have three real rights underneath it. That is usus, abusus, and fructus.
1: Is fructus like the shampoo that my mom uses?
0: No, okay, so fructus is Latin for fruit, but in this context it refers to the fruit of Something. So, usus is the right to use a thing. Fructus is the right to take the fruits of something. That is, uh, profit from some property without damaging the property. And abusus is the right to damage or destroy property. So, something that you own, you're able to. The term is abusus. So it's like abuse. So usufruct is a combination between usus and fructus. That is, the ability to use and profit from something, but without the right to destroy or get rid of it or sell it. This is actually codified in many legal jurisdictions. To this day, this concept of usufruct, typically in terms of a landlord giving usufruct rights to someone else who's then able to like grow food on their land and stuff like that. And actually just recently in Cuba in the 1990s, during an economic crisis, the government gave Cuban citizens the right to grow food on public land on a sort of usufructian basis. As part of our revolutionary program, now obviously this is a revolutionary school and you're all wearing your mandatory Che Guevara shirts. People say that school uniforms are bad for kids. I disagree. I think you kids look great. You're embodying the contradictions so well. So as part of our revolutionary program, we obviously call for ownership in common. So usufruct use and profit from common property, not from a landlord, but from a shared sense of duty towards property to not degrade it in an unreasonable or damaging way because it's all shared it belongs to everyone it comes from the same logic that you know Thomas Jefferson famous radical liberal he said that everything on earth should be held in usufruct by the living for the living you know not from a landlord but from the collective and that sort of principle underlies our revolutionary program here in addition to that is the irreducible minimum the level that no one should ever fall below and also the concept of complementarity that is through having a complex social ecosystem you're able to fulfill all sorts of needed roles in relation to each other so not everyone is a baker and not everyone is a shoemaker but but together we have enough bread and shoes for everyone in a complementary web that's our sort of revolutionary program, and that's where Yusuf Rukh fits into it.
1: That's a beautiful word, teacher.
0: Sorry, Jeffrey, can you please raise your hand before you comment in the class? Oh, yeah. Do you see, Je- I'm just gonna be honest, Jeffrey, do you see anyone else blurting out, that's a beautiful word, this whole presentation? Are they being quiet and paying attention? So
1: I'm allowed to talk now, you just called me. Sorry, yeah, you I'm asking me. you a direct question, so yeah. I just thought, it was a such a beautiful presentation? You gave a good concept, and nobody complimented you on it, and I just wanted to say it was beautiful.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. If you raise your hand and then you say it... Okay. It makes sense. Okay, thanks. Okay? Yeah. Okay, class, so next we're just going to take a short break. I want you to all get a piece of paper and write a short story about a liberated world that follows the principles of usufruct, complementarity, and the irreducible minimum. I'm just going to step outside for a cigarette. You know, they say under Utopia, cigarettes won't be bad for you kids, but we certainly don't live in that world. Now, it doesn't need to be the whole point of the story, but if you could put in an anti-smoking message or you can if you want to don't actually forget i said anything i'm just feel guilty i just have trouble at home kids you can't even imagine kids okay sorry i'll be back in like 20 minutes or whatever just like have your stories ready and so the basic idea is that property is owned in common by the group and one has domain over something while they're using it so, it's like you have temporary ownership of shared things in a context where everything is held in common. And, like, a good example of that is if you're on, say, like a work site and you say, hey, pass me that hammer. No one's ever like, this is my hammer. You have to go buy your own hammer before you can continue contributing to this collective project.
1: The idea that many things would work more like a library than a department store in the future was also something that was embedded in zeitgeist it was an example that we talked about a lot and it was often framed in the idea that it makes more sense to just want to have access to something when you need it rather than actually having to have it ownership for many things is actually more of a burden than it is something that is beneficial to people like owning a tent. Kind of sucks. Like you have to find somewhere to store the tent the like 50 weeks of the year you're not using it. For a lot of people, you don't have a lot of space for that kind of stuff. You know, there's lots of things like that, that you only need to use when you need to use it. And like having it yourself and maintaining it yourself is a pain in the ass. So it's actually better to have it something that you can just borrow and then other people can use and just borrow. And then when it doesn't work, they get replaced. And then the other angle that was core to Zeitgeist was sustainability. You're giving 50 people 50 shitty tents that they don't use 90% of the time versus just making like three really good ass durable tents that they can trade off and use when they need it and then return to the place when they don't need it is like you just save 47 tenths worth of material <laughs> by like sharing it because things sitting around in your closet aren't useful for anything and it's a waste of resources for them to be there And
0: you also have an incentive as someone who wants to continue producing tents into the foreseeable future to provide a product that is going to have a natural breakdown in life cycle that's short enough that you can sell the same customers multiple tents over their lifetime this is something that we talked about in the pirate party also is the manufactured obsolescence issue. And the library socialism concept also has this really strong economic basis. I went through a bit of a phase trying to sort of better understand economic arguments because people always use economics as this trump card. Like you don't know about economics, like no matter what your idea is, no matter what your theory is. I studied economics, you didn't. And if you know economics, you would know that your idea for people not starving causes people to starve. (laughs)
1: because all economists agree with each other about everything
0: and we have conclusive evidence in something that is a (laughs) science (laughs) and in that sort of expedition of research the big things that i took away from it economy of scale is economics when you produce a bunch of stuff at once the cost is cheaper so the example i'd make is making a big pot of soup to feed 40 people only takes maybe about three times as much time as making one bowl of soup for yourself And if everyone does that, you've wasted a bunch of human potential, basically, by having everyone atomized, producing their own individual meals. And there's also this concept fundamental to Austrian economics, which is sort of like the primary right-wing school of economics called marginal utility. And the idea is that if you have a lot of something, you need it less. So its subjective value to you is less. And someone who actually needs it, the value to them is larger And this uses an argument to say, basically, they should pay more or like they're willing to pay more. So that's what the market allows. Yeah. But what it's fundamental to it, and this is what's true about economics, implicit in the logic is the idea that the rich don't need their wealth. It has literally less value to them. If you give $100 to Bill Gates, you've literally given him almost nothing. Economics doesn't make any sense unless you hold that to be true. And then somehow they come to the conclusion at the end through all these layers of abstractions and all these interesting graphs, which if you take the time to study and understand, actually often seem quite inconclusive about what they're measuring or what they're claiming. If you take the time to interpret what they're saying, it doesn't hold up. But they somehow come to the conclusion that because an individual cow is worth less to someone who has 100 cows than to a person who has one cow, abstraction, abstraction, graph, 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 some people will always starve. So I bring this up to say that there's principles underlying economics and what is true about economics that encourages communalist, library-based, socialist utopia. When I read economics textbooks, I can feel the utopian socialist communalism bubble up through it. Because it costs less money to produce less things. And if people only need things for the duration of the time that they need them, then you're producing less things overall. So you're saving money. And then money obviously represents the other major crisis of our time, the ecological crisis. And part of the ecological crisis is that because of manufactured obsolescence, because of all this bullshit, we're burning through the planet at a higher rate than it can sustain. And we're eventually going to hit peak material resources in various ways. And we're not being good economic stewards. We're not being good. We're not running our ecology like a business. And we now go to the Wrongtopia Ecological Restoration Initiative, which is entering its fifth year of sustained ecological downturn.
1: You ever wonder what it is we're restoring here? Doesn't seem like anything's been restored. It's just getting worse. I mean the Beatles Took out the whole western region the other day. Yeah, I mean, well, that invasive species came out of nowhere. That was so.
0: Then the guys at the top are like, "Oh, we're gonna call in some hundred and forty thousand dollar fucking consulting firm to teach them to run their ecology like a business." Like, look, it's it's hard to do this shit. Like, we're trying our best. It's like maybe try increasing our budget.
1: Yeah, hundred and forty thousand dollars. you could have bought us a pizza party, multiple pizza. Yeah, hundred forty. Dude, I've seen that. a lot of pizza parties. That's
0: a lot of pizza parties, man. Hundred and forty thousand dollars. Sorry
1: for licking my lips so loudly. Ecological restoration needs fuel and pizza fuels stuff me, about baby. What's this
0: bullshit? They're like, oh, no more pizza parties until the ecology is it restored. It's been five years since our last pizza party. And are we working any less hard? A little. Yeah, because there's no pizza going in. I have to bring my own lunch.
1: Oh wait, she's talking pizza. I think that's that. What's up, ecologists? Hey, hey, hey! Welcome. We're
0: here from the private sector. Here to
1: make things more efficient. So we heard that, to use a
0: metaphor from the private sector, the profits of your ecological restoration initiative are going down. Shareholders, endangered species, and arable land are angry at you. In the private, more efficient sort of sector, we don't get to just collect a fat government paycheck. Because, you know, in the private sector, if you don't restore the ecology, you're You're out of business. You're out of business. I think you all could really learn from that sort
1: of pressure.
0: If you cause a totalizing collapse of all life on Earth, you're out of business.
1: So one of the ways in the private sector, I hope we mentioned it's where we're from, uh, one of the ways that we increase efficiency is through competition between various firms. So, you know, Apple wants to build the newest, best smartphone. Samsung wants to build the newest, best smartphone. But what's this? Oh, some young upstart companies building an even better smartphone. Mm -hmm. That's what you got to think. You got to think like the young upstart company. Now, there's other regions doing way better than you, nurturing their ecology to a beautiful and fecund place. What you two want to think to yourselves, what you want your team to believe is that you can do better than them. And God darn it, you're going to work night and day until you are better than them, until you're the best, until you have the most profits that you're distributing to your shareholders.
0: And of course, and profits refers to biological diversity, preventing the extinction of species and maintaining arable farmland that can be used. That brings me to our next point, which is that team building is super important. So think of it this way. All of the species in your ecological system are your team. And if they're endangered, you're not doing good team building by nourishing and building this team. You're gonna have the innovation and diversity that you
1: need to succeed in a 21st century environment. I know what you're all thinking. That sounds really, really good. I know I'm thinking that. But we're not just here to be your best friends. We are here to trim the fat a little bit. So if you could imagine big, sharp shears fiercely snipping into human flesh causing it to be trimmed. So that could be too much of a pollutant that's throwing the environment off balance. That could be an invasive species. Trim
0: that invasive species.
1: Or that could even be things in your own organization, say like too many pizza parties. Trim it, put that money back into ecological restoration. One last
0: point is just don't spend through all of your inheritance. This is Econ 101, this is something in the private sector that is both common sense to us and music to our ears. The material resources in the jurisdiction that you're in charge of the ecological restoration of are like an inheritance from all of our ancestors, and if you spend through it too quickly, you could go bankrupt. In that case, it means human extinction.
1: Yeah, obliteration. All right, so that's the first part of our presentation. You guys get to work on that. We're going to hit lunch. We got a pizza party to show up to at our company. Yeah,
0: the boss just thought we were really doing an excellent job with these presentations and thought we'd reward because we delivered on what our
1: job was. Pizza parties come when you're part of a successful organization.
0: I feel like everything I know about Ecological restoration has been completely disrupted. It's like ecological restoration 2.0.
1: Yeah, this was a revolution for me in the way that we're going to be doing this. It's worth 140.
0: Yeah. Oh. Can I smell their pizza party through the door right now? Yeah. yeah it smells really good. Absolutely. Do I wish that they would share with me in an act of basic human decency, despite the fact that our department is struggling to and meet the target? We deserve it. And yeah, yeah absolutely.
1: Maybe yeah. Maybe they'll leave us some scraps.
0: If I get my hopes up for scraps now, I'm only going to be disappointed later. So I'm just going to accept and embrace that even if there are scraps, I won't
1: take them because I need to learn my lesson. All this saliva that it's working up for me, I'm salivating at this. It's really going to be motivating. Nothing like fear of not getting enough food to make you work on things that are important anyway.
0: Hopefully my excessive amounts of drool and spit coming out of my mouth don't drip onto my workstation as I just think about all the pizza parties that I can one day earn and deserve if I act more like the private sector. Will they successfully run their ecology like a business? Will they meet their ecological restoration targets in the five-year window outlined from the boys at the top? Will they get their $140,000 worth of delicious and well-earned pizza? Tune in later in the episode to find... Well, let's go to Mr. What Was, Is, and Ever Will Be and just find out now. Uh, Mr. What Was, Is, and Ever Will Be, will they eventually get their pizza party and stuff? Like, will they pull it off? Oh, yes, absolutely they do. Thank you so much, Mr. What Is, Was, and Ever Will Be. Uh, You can stop listening to the episode now if that was the only thing that you were waiting to hear. For the rest of you, now back to the show. Look, it just, on the other side of these bushes, it clears out a bit. Oh, look. It's going to bring us right next to the shore. It's absolutely beautiful this time of day.
1: Well, this whole area is beautiful. All the trees and little mushrooms around here. Yeah, I mean, it's no wonder there's evidence saying
0: it's good for people to spend time in nature. It's good for people's mental health. Peaceful out here. Just you and me. Yeah, I feel a bit guilty we didn't invite <laughs> Artemis to come with us. Yeah. Yeah, we
1: triplets it, it's kind of a
0: package deal, I guess. Tom, but- John, Artemis, come with us. And it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. And I like Artemis, obviously, he's just... He's just take, a lot.
1: Yeah, he's a lot. He's
0: my triplet. I love him, but it's just... This Sometimes, is, yeah, good this has to been not good. have him out, yeah. yeah. Just dig those moments of silence. Yeah, just like, just like hearing nature and just being yeah. present. And, like, biospheres have all this complementarity, like the complexity of an ecosystem makes it more stable. So, like, one of the threats of climate change is that you're simplifying biospheres and you're making them unstable, So Mm. there's this sort of like naturally developing complexity, this this sort of like process in nature of this, like the loss of a species, like the loss of an evolutionary line that's got this like tragedy to it. like uh, that's part of the reasons that we would be so humans are so upset about the massive
1: rate of like species loss yeah the mass extinction that we're going through and causing yeah it's
0: shit's a bummer and it's like the one silver lining is that we try to keep a record of the species
1: that exist just reminds me i've been studying the history of libraries actually recently oh cool Honestly, I've got this bad habit of buying books. You're building your own personal
0: library. In a sense, the library like that you have at your house represents the sort of like trajectory that you're on. Yeah, it's a representation of your journey. Especially if you're buying different like sorts of like political and history texts based on what you're interested in. Just like the library carries this knowledge about who you have seen yourself as over time.
1: One thing that was super fascinating for me to learn: the earliest libraries that we know about come at the very beginning of recorded history, which, when you think about it, is pretty obvious because what is a library but a store of records of information, and that's what history is. Well, yeah. Another thing that really fascinated me about library history was that the history of libraries is run through the whole time with also the history of library suppression and destruction. And one of the earliest not actually sure how to say this, I've just been reading it a lot. But the Qin Dynasty, the first dynasty of Imperial China, ordered that all historical records from the time before that would be destroyed and that the librarians and scholars would be killed so that history would be seen to begin with that dynasty.
0: We call your bluff First Imperial Dynasty. You're at least the Second Imperial <laughs> Dynasty, but probably more. Like, we don't want to be number seven. Time to kill the librarians. Uh, What the fuck's wrong with you? That's psychopath. That's (laughs) psychopath. That's unecological.
1: Luckily, the next dynasty, the Han dynasty, actually reversed this policy, and much of the history, not all of it, was recovered. And during the Han dynasty and going forward, record keeping and production of literature in China was encouraged. Yeah, Han dynasty. Now that's my dynasty. Han dynasty also introduced one of the earliest classification schemes for information, because that's crucial to libraries, too, is like you have all these books it's like, what order do you put them in? How do you engage mm. with them? If they're just sitting there and you don't know what's in them, it's kind of useless, right? When future Chinese dynasties actually prefigured the printing press with uh, woodblock printing, they would carve the symbols into woodblocks and kind of use them as stamps, and then later arrange stamps in large things and then put pieces of parchment or papyrus over it and press it. Well, that's really cool.
0: It. Especially like to innovate that, to go from hand replication of written works to potential mass production of it oh shit look a heron oh my god i've never seen one of those before yeah i told you this is like the nicest shore in the whole park it's it's beautiful that thing is a beast do
1: they usually grow that big yeah i don't know it does seem big though
0: oh there he goes enjoy the fish buddy (laughs) and then later he'll probably be eaten by some sort of enormous bird right
1: like in the sky Circle of life. So in the West, the rise of libraries kind of began in ancient Greece and the major philosophical schools. The Peripatetic Libraries formed the foundation for the library at Alexandria, which had hundreds of thousands of scrolls. And the founders of it, their aim was to collect the whole body of literature in the best available copies arranged in systematic order so as to form the basis for publishing commentaries and then was burned down famously. Yeah, I
0: think the sadness that you feel when you have like a really good library that burns down is really similar to the sadness that you feel when you have like the
1: extinction of an animal. The tradition of libraries does continue on through Rome, Constantinople as a huge library, but kind of over time and as the Roman Empire fades out, a lot of this stuff might have been lost if it hadn't been for a rich tradition of philosophy and commentary that rose in the Islamic world at the time. And the Islamic world actually had learned new paper making techniques from Chinese prisoners of war, which allowed them to massively amplify the amount of books and texts that they were making. And by the 10th century, Baghdad and Cordoba had developed as the world's largest book markets. And another group of people who kind of carried the torch through this period of fewer libraries existing were Catholic monks. The Benedictine monastic order especially emphasized the study and reproduction of texts as an important almost holy action that the monks would take they would have these giant rooms in their monasteries called scriptoria where they would sit around copying out texts all the time like imagine people dedicating their lives just to like copying out books i find it hard to read a book like copying out a whole book Wow,
0: yeah, that's intense. Yeah, the printing press must have been like a huge step up. Does the 15th century have an Andrew Yang to protect them from automation?
1: No, actually, a lot of these monasteries that, you know, carried the torch of human knowledge for hundreds of years were ransacked and their libraries destroyed and contents dispersed following the development of the printing press. Because one of the things that happened after the printing press was the Protestant Reformation and the availability of the Bible to everyday people and so that coincided with a rebellion against catholic clergy and as well the printing press causes the renaissance and eventually the enlightenment to begin and also in the renaissance strangely like in england henry the 8th and edward the 6th declaring their alignment with the new learning of the humanists had the universities, churches, schools, and libraries purged of all books that embodied the old learning of the Middle Ages. So there was a lot of loss of information there. It kind of seems counter to the spirit of the Renaissance. And in And there is a lot of new work being produced and like scholarship being done, and beautiful stuff. But part of it is like, oh, let's destroy this old stuff. Bit of library history during the French Revolution, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France became one of the world's largest libraries at the time because During dechristianization, the collections of all the clergy, as well as just in general, the collections of all the aristocrats in the country were seized and collected at local depots in each city, and then were sent to the Central National Library of France, and also they created provincial libraries around the country. So
0: they redistributed libraries from the rich to the poor during the French Revolution?
1: Apparently they did lose quite a lot of books during this process, but... (laughs) The idea behind it's pretty cool, like creating this national library everyone in theory could use. see,
0: yeah, I got this such a this natural urge, and maybe it's an unnatural or foolish urge to like retain every book, even if a book is incorrect, it's still got this like historical value to exist and just to have this history of libraries so mixed up in the loss of knowledge, the permanent loss of knowledge, yeah, is so baked yeah. into the history of libraries is actually really similar to biodiversity is there's we have this fossil record of immense loss of biodiversity and species at different times in history you know like i don't think we should naturalize and say like oh you know they go extinct all the time so it's okay if we make them all extinct all at once but there is like a sort of natural process that happens there yeah Um, yeah
1: well yeah loss and degradation is part of most systems like you have to actively fight against it and that's what the history of libraries and like information archivism is it's like fighting to retain something that without that would degrade would dissolve away into chaos again as everything does
0: yeah it's like we still have an ethical responsibility to pursue the largest libraries possible but we can't change the past that there has been loss of information and forces outside of our control will likely take information away from us again, but we can uh, do our best to resolve ourselves against that, strengthen our capacity to
1: archive. During this time, the field of library science is developed because people are realizing that as history moves forward, there's a real problem with maintaining and interacting with these vast stores of information. Because if you're not interacting with it it can be lost in other ways context can be lost languages can be lost words that things used to mean can be lost and so library science is the multidisciplinary field applies the practices perspectives and tools of management information technology education and other areas to the collection organization preservation and dissemination of information but after this, once you're in, like, the 1800s, libraries just really kind of take off closer to what we think of them today. Oh, lending libraries. Sweet. Lending libraries. The, the innovation here is they're public libraries funded through government, like, municipal. So it's not just, like, for universities. It's not, like, national libraries. It's, like, this is public facing and publicly funded. That's what, that's what the point of them is.
0: When, when they were first implementing public municipal libraries, was there sort of like an equivalent to the copyright lobby being like, this is going to deprive writers of profits. Like you're going to turn writers into paupers.
1: Some of them even called them hotbeds of crime because, you know, if you're a bookseller, obviously the libraries are like a fundamental threat to your profits. It's kind of how capitalism works. Sometimes it's like, who cares what the good is? It's all about my profits. This
0: part of the path ahead is really steep. Do you want to like take a break and sort of regroup before we hit that thing? Because it's like, yeah, yeah, I don't even know how you get down there.
1: Now I guess the real change with libraries is that books are going digital, and the idea of a library is no longer just a specific place where works are stored. But there's, in a sense, a giant online library that is distributed through the computers of all the people on the internet and it's in a sense the greatest library the world has ever known
0: yeah actually it's sort of weird to think that some of the most extensive public facing libraries on earth are pirate criminal libraries you know like Mm -hmm. black market free lending information sharing there's something cyberpunk about that like library like illegal
1: libraries the music torrenting site what.cd was taken offline a few years ago but until then it was actually the world's largest and most comprehensive collection of all music that ever existed It was pretty like a really amazing thing, and it was destroyed.
0: Damn. In the future, people are going to look back on that the same way that, like, we look on all these times we're in library history where you just, like, lose all this information, lose all these old manuscripts. The loss of the torrent sites in recent history is like very much in that same tradition that's a
1: wild thought even like with all these online libraries I still wouldn't count out physical libraries they've kind of shifted really taking that role that librarians play of being an interface between the public and knowledge and expanding that uh, Richard Rubin, I was reading his book Foundations of Library and Information Science, it's a recently published book, and he, in his preface, said that the library is now part of a complex and dynamic educational, recreational, and informational infrastructure. goes on to talk about access, equity, literacy, information literacy, ability to interact with vast stores of information in a competent way. and. Community space becoming kind of central to the projects of modern lending libraries, in addition to their traditional functions of lending out books. So, just really continue to play a really vital role in society and in communities. Yeah, libraries are the bomb. I love libraries. And thank you for letting me ramble on about this. Artemis, I'm sure would have. Been talking about something Artemis based by now. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. did
0: Artemis see a billboard ad with a pretty girl on it? It's like, okay, thanks, Artemis. Yeah, yeah Artemis story. is
1: a real library of all the billboards of the pretty girls. Yeah, ever it,
0: seen. <laughs> like if you wanted to build a library of us triplets, you definitely include Artemis. Mm, definitely. But I think sometimes it makes perfect sense. It's not a contradiction. I was like, is this a contradiction? I started getting worried. I'm like, uh, am I violating my values by excluding Artemis? But no, mm. this is like if you took us Tom and John out of the triplet library right yeah you don't left Artemis in the library because it's part of the greatness of the library is choosing
1: which yeah you wouldn't want to borrow all the books every time it's
0: like if you have two really sleek to the point and quality Stephen King books and then you have one sort of infamously long it's oh, sort of like tedious it? to get through yeah. You're not a
1: hypocrite for not taking out That Stephen King book On every hiking trip I actually like thinking of Artemis like the Stephen King book It, because like it is really good And Artemis is really good, but it is Jesus Christ, you could have used an editor The Shining, that's a great length book Yeah, Shining's the perfect length Alright, All right. I think I'm rested Let's try and get down this steep part We might have to stop talking for a minute though. Okay Okay <clears throat>
0: I think probably the first time I contemplated utopia, I think it was like a teenager. And I remember having this notebook where I'd write down like joke ideas and stuff like that. And I remember writing down like, why don't we aim for utopia? Why do people talk about politics in a way where like utopia is this shameful thing? To be a utopian is to be naive but obviously everyone wants to make the world better so like why don't we try to think about what the best world would be or like the best
1: possible world or the best possible next step for the world to take. Yeah like in Zeitgeist stuff it was always framed as we're not utopian. This isn't a utopian vision. This is a realistic vision based on the current science as it exists and like we can do this. It's possible and like it's, it's a good framing but like episode 10 of the show is called World Peace and I just remember you saying extremely early on like why Why don't people unironically advocate for world peace anymore? It's just become this thing that people mock, and it's like, oh, you just want world peace. And it's like, well, yeah, of course we want fucking world peace. That's the goal, right? World peace. And you were like, let's do an episode about world peace and like return to it pretty frequently. It's like, oh, well, I'm wise enough to know that it's
0: very, very hard to achieve world peace. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, yeah, yes. We're not playing around here. Yeah, talking about world peace is so naive and dumb. It's embarrassing. To be
1: caught calling for world peace. Like it's to call better for world to discredit peace. the idea that world peace could ever exist.
0: And it's also, it's really important to describe the outcome that you want when you're advocating for something. I think a sort of basic feature of political organizing is when we bring in Medicare for all, then you'll have health care. You'll be able to go to the doctor. It's like, oh, I see how the outcome benefits me. So we have to do the important work of theorizing and taking from what exists and using creative reinterpretation for the things that are actually already around us to be able to have the capacity to sell a better society. So it's, I'm a person who came to the conclusion at some point that there needed to be a really, really big change. There wasn't just like a bunch of little small problems to tweak. There was like some really fundamental issues in society. And it seems
1: like from the people who agree with me, you
0: know, revolutionaries, they're adverse to describing an alternative order.
1: Yeah, there will be like some description, but a lot of it happens in the form of negation. Well, it won't be like this. There's definitely ton a ton of development on the theory side of what's wrong with what currently exists and that's all super important and good it's i wouldn't say necessarily easier to do that but you have a strong reference like this is what's going on and we can see that it's causing these bad outcomes this is awful we need to end capitalism and then what are we going to build instead is like well you know socialism, a better society, communism. Is it going to look like those other times they tried communism? Well, maybe a little bit, but like actually kind of a lot not like that. Library socialism, using library as the reference and then talking about how it would work is something that stands on its own. And it's not a critique of the current society in and of itself. Like you can infer critiques, but saying like, this is how it would work. We would have library distribution points that would have all the things that people in that neighborhood generally take out. Like, you know, the little library in your neighborhood might have lawnmowers for everyone because that's the thing that people use around the house. The library near the lake would have boats for people to borrow. It's context dependent. Things like that, you just can describe how things would actually work, what the society would actually look like? What would it be like to exist in a world like this? I think the final piece of the puzzle for me that really clicked me into loving the idea of calling it library socialism was actually fairly recently, Is around the time that we did the Universal Basic Outcome episode. It's
0: 142.
1: We were talking about this criticism people have of universal basic income or of welfare more generally. Oh, if you provide people with enough food that they're not starving to death, they'll sit around and be lazy all the time. And like one of the... Major things that came up for me in that was libraries because I was going to the library a lot at the time to do writing. And it's one of the few places in a city like this where you can just go for free and sit indoors in like a nice environment and exist for free. I'd go on the internet if you don't have a computer yourself. And I would see all the little flyers up around the library about job fairs or like workshops, even things like movie nights or like discussion groups. There's just these little things up for little community events that were taking place at the library. And so even today in the society that we exist in, libraries are more than just book sharing depots. they are also these kind of like free community spaces where people are sharing other things with each other, space and skills. And let's just grant that like, not having enough food is a good motivator to find some way to contribute to society. What kind of cultural institutions do we want to have in place so that people can find things that they want to do, projects to work on in their life? And I was like, oh yeah, libraries. You'd have All of this stuff going on at the library. If you want to learn any skill, you'd go to the library, the community center. If you wanted to just try different things, try a wood shop, car (laughs) mechanicry, sewing, you can go to the library, you can learn how to do these things. And it's a major expansion upon those like examples I've listed of things that already exist, you know, build a resume. But it's like, it's the kind of seed of that thing. It's like, what kinds of things can I do? Like here, let's help people jumpstart things. It's this place that would be alive with community and with possibility and with learning and I was like yeah that that is kind of part of the library and it's a part of the library that needs to be expanded on and would be a core part of like my utopian society and so like that also came to me through the vector of thinking about libraries so
0: elements of capitalism existed under feudalism and at some point it bubbled up from under the surface. The capitalism sprung forth from feudalism. And so the next world, which as Zizek reminded us, they used to call communism, but it doesn't matter, also carries itself within the modern capitalist world and comes out in different ways. It's You can see it. You can see it in a soup kitchen. You can see it in a library. You can see it, especially in a tool library. You can even see it, and I'll qualify this, don't worry, you can even see it In things like airbnb and uber and obviously airbnb and uber there's like the labor issues there there's with airbnb there's the problem of property hoarding and basically landlords making a lot of money taking rental stock off the market and the problem with uber there's like the labor violations they're both pretty bad business models lots of good critiques to be had against both of them but there is in that bad thing the revolutionary seed which is the sharing of the property based on need within the confines of the capitalist system
1: yeah it's this it's similar to what we talked about in the the people's republic of walmart episode that obviously walmart's this horrible thing but there is this revolutionary seed in there and that they have cracked the code on global economic planning on a vast scale like walmart along with some other companies but walmart primarily like figured that out and like got shit done. And likewise, Amazon has figured out how to do massive like online global production with distribution and shipping directly to people's houses. This is a planning marvel that is a potential bit of socialism. Like it's within the confines of capitalism. And in some ways it's these hyper capitalist elements of it. But there are those glimmers that foreshadow what you'd want a good society to look like. So elements of the Library
0: Socialist Society are already here, but their potentiality is is being limited by the system that we live under. Library Socialism changes the relationships fundamentally between human beings. So property relations are relations between human beings. For me to own the pen I'm holding doesn't mean that me and the pen have the relationship. It's me and everyone else have a relationship about the pen. Pens are inanimate. They can't have relationships. The reason I specify that is that the problem of inequality and in property relations is a social problem. It's a relationship between people. And the transition from this society to the next is primarily a change in the relationship between people. Elements of those types of relationships exist under this world. Like, for example, handing a hammer to someone else on a worksite because you're both serving a common end, those types of social relationships under this society are not the dominant mode of relations in society. In the society that we're going to be achieving, they will become the dominant.
1: What I think makes the library socialist positive platform really click and really meaningful for people is that it plugs into something that we experience already. So you say it would be like a library for all these things different in these specific ways. And people get that immediately. And like likewise, talking about what types of social relationships we'd like to operate on the basis of primarily being things like handing a hammer over to someone who you're working on a project together because they need a hammer and it's there. The logic of that is so intuitive. People get it. They've done things like that a million times. That's part of human potential. That's part of human capacity. That's what we can do. And we want to expand that logic out to these other areas of society in this way.
0: Along those lines, another thing that makes this stuff feel a lot realer to participate in is if you have the opportunity to participate in a direct democracy of some kind like my big experience with like prefigurative direct democracy was during occupy experiencing that where people are making collective decisions together people are providing food for others in a group context you're seeing the generosity of people made me start to think that really really different ways of organizing people were possible despite all the complexities and weird stuff about Occupy Camps, there was also some exciting, weird energy to participate in it. The experience of of direct democracy, it's a powerful thing. It's like very, very neat. I feel like by describing this possible good outcome in terms that can be felt, it definitely makes me feel good about engaging with the current state of things to be able to feel like I'm seeing bits of the next world bubble through.
1: Now we've been describing one beautiful perfect utopia. But for some reason, there's still these criticisms floating around out there. People hear us say, let's expand the concept of a lending library to all areas of life. And instead of saying, wow, that sounds great. They say, hold up a minute here.
0: Absolutely confusing as you express a perfect good idea that's uncomplicated and people respond with confusion even sometimes anger so we wanted to make our tent big enough for everyone including them Mm -hmm. yeah hold some space and respond to some of the common criticisms that we get when we bring this idea forward of a global library held in common for the good of all extending the principle of a lending library to ensure an irreducible minimum as part of a liberated complementary society so what's the first uh, criticism we have here This is one that we got a lot. People don't want this system. I like owning my own books. I like owning things. You tell everyone out there that you're going to collectivize all property on earth, you're going to have a riot on your hands.
1: Well, first, I think the only people who don't want it are the people who don't understand it. And I think that might include the people asking this question. Saying you like to own things, it's like, what do you love to own that much? Your lamp? You can keep your lamp at home. Mm -hmm. If you like your lamp, you can keep your lamp. But then like, even if you think about how people who own lamps, what they do with them, you own a lamp for 20 years or something, you keep a lamp and then eventually you get a new lamp and you throw that one out or you give it to someone else for them to use take a lamp out for five years. If you want to redo the decor in your house, you can get a new different lamp and then return that lamp for other people to use. Nobody's going to be coming and confiscating your lamps. If you're using it, you can keep it out of the library for years.
0: Yeah, it's like the premise of Usufruct is like, Use and enjoyment. You get the use and enjoyment of the lamp. You don't have the right to destroy it, to hide it away or bury it underground so no one can use it. As long as you're respecting the principle that it exists for use, it's part of our shared property then you can keep it for as
1: long as you need it. Another version of this that came up, I saw this guy said, I just got my daughter her first bike and she wanted to paint it red with a racing stripe on it. And, you know, if it was a library bike, we couldn't paint it red with a racing stripe on it because we didn't own it. And I was like, you just misunderstanding again. You're not destroying. It if you're just adding a layer of paint, the kid outgrows the bike in a few years, they return it to the library. Some other kid will see that bike and they'll love it. They'll want to take it out. That's just uniqueness. That's an interesting item that the library can have to lend out from there on. If
0: someone was systematically taking every bike out, painting all the bikes red, putting a racing stripe on every bike, then yes, of course that could be stopped. There would be limits within the system, reasonable limits determined based on what the usage ends up being and what things we need to defend and tweak the system to protect ourselves from. But that process happens, that process of testing the boundaries and improving it happens in the real world. It doesn't happen in the world of ideas. You need to start the program and work out the kinks as it goes along. And find out the exact version that works. But absolutely, we would be concerned about abuse of the shared common property and we'd work out systems to prevent abuse.
1: You definitely want to prevent abuse. And, like, yeah, I want to lay down the flag too that, like, retaining the ability to use things in novel ways. It's kind of like writing in the margins of books. People say, I don't like library books because I can't write in the margins of them. Under library socialism, if you wanted to take a book out during your lifetime and just keep it and write in the margins, you can do that. And then when you return it, that's a unique copy of the book with writing in the margins. It can be noted on the library docket that this is an altered copy has extra information in it like we want that in the library and that information too is retained your notes
0: well and i think the need to alter books that way can be itself changed by the development of further technology that allows us to store our highlighting on physical books digitally and carry it with us next criticism while i concede that you could probably have enough of people's basic needs Well, thank you. That's
1: That's a good concession. A lot of people don't even realize that much.
0: There would still be finite amounts of luxury items. How do you deal with the inherent material scarcity
1: of the world? You can understand how people in the current society right now, where scarce goods are dispersed based on the semi-random, semi-based on historical privilege and violence distribution of money. They're saying, if we're not going to base it on the semi-random, semi-based on the historical distribution of violence thing money, what are we going to base the distribution of scarce goods on? Who gonna, gets the beachfront property? Wrong boys. Are you going to make us wait in boat lines just to go out on a fishing rig? If everybody wants that bike with the racing stripe on it, who gets it?
0: Well, I think you'd have to do a detailed and thoughtful analysis of what people's needs are and what the material costs of producing something is. Obviously, we're not going to be providing you know dozens of large Hadron colliders or other multi-billion dollar scientific equipment to the general public.
1: Yeah, the kind of thing that it is will determine the ways in which people can use it and, and profit from the fruits of it. You're only going to have one, maybe two, three large hadron colliders. People can book time. And lots of things can like determine how much time you're going to book. Do a lot of people want to know the results of your particular study that you're doing? Do you use up a lot of time at other sort of scarce Resources like this and not produce very much. Maybe your ability to use things would go down. I think there, there's a ton of different factors that would have to go into decisions like this. And I think reasonable answers for these kinds of things are possible. But also, I want to emphasize that a lot of the time, questions like this are coming from a perspective like, sort of imagining that people are going to have the same desire to. You know, have the biggest diamonds or something that people have. And these weird sort of displays of status that are really are relics of the current capitalist economic system that we live in. And what if there's a scarcity of giant diamond necklaces? Diamond's a bad example because it's not actually a scarce resource. Everybody probably could have a giant diamond necklace if we wanted to. The question would just be like, what's the ecological cost? What's the benefit of it?
0: And is it needed? Like, if there's stuff that's not needed, but has... like, you, you might increase the supply of big diamonds if there was an increased demand for it. Or you might shorten the loaning window for it. Might mm-hmm. create waiting lists for diamonds and stuff. But I think if that's as dystopian as this proposed utopia is going to get, is that you have a waiting list to use a speedboat or wear a diamond necklace... It's a pretty functional society there.
1: Yeah. And like waiting lists sound dystopian, but I think you can really make it a fair system that people would appreciate engaging with in a way that using the historical distribution of wealth, they don't appreciate.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think things should be judged on their own. Like, We can't just be like, well, look at the alternative system where the historical violence distributes power in this totally uneven way. And that's what determines access to big diamonds and speedboats instead of waiting lists isn't that a dystopia compared to our proposal like it's tempting to do that but we should also defend it in its own terms and say that actually a, a waiting list isn't bad like in itself like waiting lists are actually sort of part of a smoothly working society yeah you having to waiting- book a massage ahead isn't dystopian i'm gonna book a speedboat oh there's only one speedboat available for the next three months and it's during a work day at this like Hard to I mean, use like, time or whatever. You know, that's just efficiency. That's what efficiency looks like.
1: Yeah. I mean, if it's like in the current society where you have a waiting list for a homelessness shelter, like you don't want a waiting list for food. Like, oh, yeah, you'll get food in three months. Like, no, you need food now. That's why
0: an analysis of need is needed for the true use of fraction.
1: Yeah. Or, ne- or needed for what and in what concept. Like, maybe I need to use the Large Hadron Collider to finish my life's work and that's important to me. It'll bring me fulfillment. I need it for that. But you don't need it in the sense of if I don't get there today, I'll literally die. Like if I don't get any water or oxygen. So there's different levels of need and need for different things. Next, criticism. I feel like we're knocking it out of the park on these criticisms. Who
0: administers this system and who gave them the power to enslave us into
1: doing this? Well, that's a loaded question. Yeah, it's a
0: sharp question, but appreciate it. You got us on the ropes. Let's see if we can Pow, 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 fight our way back. Prove that we're not proposing a new class of slave owners.
1: So number one, who runs it? Answer, there's a couple ways to think about the answer. One of them is everybody runs it because it is a democratic society, which means that everybody ultimately has a say in the decisions that society makes. Mm -hmm.
0: And using a process of experimentation, theory, trying stuff out in practice, you're going to build a better and better idea of what an effective democratic system looks like, trying out different things and pushing the frontiers of democracy to their greatest ideal form. The democratic systems that we use in our current society obviously have flaws, but are also clearly better than the alternative of, say, like a violently repressive dictatorship. So yeah,
1: if you are choosing to force our society into the framework of slavery and to compare it to that, then everybody would be the slaves and also everybody would be the slave owners at the same time. It kind of doesn't work. So that's why I wouldn't use your framework. It's it's
0: insensitive. Like there's real slaves. When you throw off these sort of like libertarian, like taxation slavery, sort of like not really slavery stuff, calling it slavery to make a rhetorical point, you are at sort of like Moving the spotlight off existing 2019 slavery that no one talks about to talk about how it's inconvenient for you to pay five cents on a dollar.
1: But I already hear your objection to our answer about democracy, which is that, oh, come on, that's a cop out. Somebody's going to have to actually run these systems. And you're right. If there's, say, an online democracy system or online waiting list system or online library system, you're going to need engineers building those online systems. You're going to need people administering the systems. There's going to be people engaged in civic life in that way. And, And how are they chosen?
0: Well, I think if you're a neutral body administering the democratic procedures as a facilitator, then you'd want to have a sort of meritocratic, public facing process for that. But on the political side, you know, there's going to be sort of organically different political tendencies within a broader democratic system. And within that, some people organically will be leaders and that they're followed. You can even incorporate the anarchist critique of hierarchy. You can design the system so the leaders don't get to tell people what to do, but people can decide to follow them. There's an important distinction there. Like the principle of liquid democracy, where you have delegated voting, where you can vote for someone to vote on your behalf, either broadly or on a specific issue or on a specific vote, which is partially how democracy already works anyways. It's like people within social groups turn to each other for feedback on who the best choice is to vote
1: in this election yeah, and, and why. Not much attention. Can you tell me?
0: There's always going to be a large portion of people that don't actively participate in the political process every single day but and part of politics is leaders being followed or people putting trust in them so i think that's how i'm thinking of structuring it at this point but i'm also open to other ways of incorporating sort of expertise into the process and different modes of voting like i I think an experimental outlook is really the way to go like yeah the
1: political decisions are going to proceed basically like you said, whereas more procedural administrative decisions, if you're concerned about those, are probably going to just be made by people who have the necessary skills and are hired or however that's thought about in the future. And then if they cause poor outcomes, then the democratic process, again, can intervene in that by creating new guidelines or however that works. So it would all be ultimately accountable to that democratic process. So that's who's going to run things.
0: Oh, and it won't be slavery in any sense. It'll always be voluntary. This might sound a little weird, but like people will really like it once they experience the effect of having access to abundance in a way that they never have before, a more healthy idea of abundance. But, yeah, this next, this next criticism sort of gets in on this sort of thing, too, is how do you plan on getting to this utopia? Will that take violence? And some of these comments, are you, you're advocating for violence. You guys are violent ideologues. It's dangerous to listen to your beautiful ideas about library socialism, no matter how beautiful they are. And a lot of the comments do mention these are beautiful ideas. It seems perfect in many ways. Mm-hmm. And some that. of
1: them even say that it's worse because they're so beautiful. Exactly. They'll be more motivating. For exactly. The, it's yeah. dangerous how beautiful and perfect these ideas are,
0: yet they're so dangerous. And we appreciate these types of comments to give them space and then be able to respond to them. Do you advocate for violence to transition to the Library Socialist Society?
1: No, I don't.
0: Yeah, the answer is absolutely not.
1: A plan that has violence as the primary tactic is not something we're interested in and not something that we think would really get to... The society we're describing.
0: I think what the real violence is, is the withholding of records and information from the public. It's paywalls. It's paywalls for, for scientific papers. It's
1: libraries that don't have enough copies of the books that people want to read. Paywalls for other things, like paywalls for food and bread. You go to the grocery store, there's a paywall behind all that food. And that literally kills people. That's violence, man. We're
0: not talking about violence here. We're talking about building utopia through a combination of a prefigurative entryist and public relations strategy to actualize a real utopia to take care of everyone. We're not talking about picking a fight with anyone. They're all invited to be on board. But know what the real violence is, man? The real violence is taking down the largest collection of music in history instead of making sure that everyone was able to tap into that.
1: Yeah, it is is really messed up for people to throw these accusations of violence out at us when they're tacitly or in most cases explicitly supporting the violence of a locked deadbolt on an empty home while people freeze to death in the cold
0: so to ultimately answer your question how do we get there it starts with beefing up libraries beefing up democracy trying to actualize the principles that we want to see in the new world bring them to reality to the highest degree possible within this realm and while building up public support for a full-on transition the first task is to try to convince absolutely everyone. It's plan A.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you just, you know, you start with the influencers. You convince as many influencers as you can. Anyway, that's maybe getting a bit granular in strategy, but. We have the documents. Yeah, it's like plan A, part I, you know, the little lowercase i. So this is a beautiful world that we
0: can actualize and bring about, believe it or not, completely above board. No need for weird police stuff, no need for like all getting armed. I mean, do what you want, but I'm saying we can pull this off above board. The ideas are good enough. Just needs to be articulated in ways that people can understand.
1: But yes, to throw a bone to the other people who are screaming right now with their own objections that I won't name. If you get attacked, you can defend yourself.
0: You're absolutely right. As Malcolm X said, be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. But if someone puts his hand on you, send him to the cemetery.
1: So that is is that. all the criticisms. We cover it. Yeah, I mean, the rest were mostly incoherent. Yeah, you do get a lot of incoherent criticism. So, well, I guess the end of that segment. Time for the next segment. So we're approaching a
0: crisis point with a number of interlocked crises. In Vancouver, we feel it very deeply with the housing crisis. The cost of living here is insane. And there's a lot of places, major cities that are experiencing this. Homelessness, the problem of inequality. There's a massive amounts of environmental damage done by the production of electronics, including and especially smartphones. The world's data centers and their air conditioning uses a lot of energy, releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. We're all essentially connected into a worldwide surveillance network, which is not fully understood by anyone. It's non-simultaneously apprehended. We know that mass data retention does happen, but we don't have a comprehensive list of everyone who does mass data retention, how they do it and why. But it's a system that's vulnerable to mass data interception. There's a lot of like reasons to be really concerned about this dystopian World bubbling under the surface also and we're in this like pincher where you can either have ecology or oblivion you can either have socialism or barbarism
1: yeah like stuff is changing the material conditions of society the productive forces in society are changing extremely extremely rapidly and like if we were good marxists we might say Socialism will burst forth from that necessarily, though. Not all Marxists think that. I think most Marxists admit that it's a struggle that you might not win. That sort of seems part of their whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, I think I do that because I'm kind of attracted to the idea that it will inevitably burst forth. It's a comforting idea. And so I want to think that somebody thinks it.
0: That is a comforting (laughs) bourgeois liberal deviation you're saying the global proletariat can
1: sit on their hands comrade no you have to stand and fight i'm saying they inevitably will stand and fight It's <laughs> the course of history the threat of eco-fascism
0: i think is really real because the threat of an outside force has been used historically and can be used again to get people to rally behind a strong man who promises to deliver them from the terror that they face and when it comes to the choice between radical redistribution and the maintenance of unequal property relations, there's many powerful people whose incentives, regardless of their intentions, their incentives are lined up with backing a strong man who maintains the current property relations rather than a deeply revolutionary model. So there's this like real possibility and threat, I think, of seeing ecofascism rising in our lifetimes. It's already happening with fascist groups appropriating ecological rhetoric as the imminent impacts of climate change are becoming more and more apparent and more and more people are seeing footage of the flooded streets, burning buildings being carried away by floods and the migration crisis that is caused by droughts and people fleeing for safer borders. That's my sad news, friends. The important thing about when we're talking about the move from one type of society to the next is to recognize that the future is not written. There's a lot of different potential futures, and futures are created partially by the futures that we write and project on them. Dystopianism has a purpose, but we shouldn't get caught up in sort of a nihilistic, misanthropic dystopianism, which I think is the sort of prominent narrative of the future of the current moment. People have said it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, And our role as good utopians is to say, nah, I can imagine the end of capitalism. Let me tell you about it. Because we're in a fight between the end of the world and the end of capitalism. And the end of the world people, if it's purely just like putting weights on either side of a scale, anytime it's described, the end of the world side is getting a lot of fucking ink these days. It's getting a lot of love from people on all sides of the political spectrum describing the end of the world. But I did ask my psychic about the end of capitalism. Oh, yeah? What did she say? Twenty one nineteen, 100 years from now.
1: Oh, yeah. It's the same time borders are going to be over with, if I remember right.
0: I asked a follow-up question. I said, are things going to get worse before then, or are they going to get better? And she said, the things that are unstoppable will get worse, but a lot of other things will get better. If things didn't get better, we wouldn't make it. That is soothing. She's she's great. She is great. If you're listening, I know I'm a little bit behind on payments for the psychic readings, but I'm good for it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I think there's a new episode of Wrongtopia history that's about to start.
1: Awesome, I love the history of that place. Here, let's just point the
0: satellite dish. Turn on the control panel. Here's your remote. I think this is the right remote. I've got like three or four remotes around here. No, this is the. Yeah, right. no,
1: it's the squarish one.
0: Just make make sure to hit the satellite disc button. There we go. And here it is. Let's give it a watch today's episode the history of
1: Rongtopia's library system oh, i love this topic Rongtopia's library system rich and storied history can i interest you in some wine good sir please i heard a glass a day or two is actually good for you
0: <laughs> we'd like to think that but alcohol causes cancer at a similar rate to cigarettes i heard anyways hmm Oh, that is delightful. A sparkling white. It's the white wine for me.
1: I just like the sparkling. If it's white, I mean, that's what most sparkling wines are. But if someone made a red sparkling wine, I'd drink that too.
0: Recently, I had too much red wine. I'll spare you the gory details, but let's just say it's going to be a little while before I can return to the reds, although there's a special place in my heart for them. So wrongtopia's library system so now wrongtopia is a borderless planet it's a world that is populated by 12 billion people
1: five primary groups of
0: nomads oh yeah there's five groups of nomads there's also the stationary class that are not always but often wealthier than the nomads and they often run the infrastructure of different physical locations The nomads mostly are employed in these locations through job-finding
1: apps. One of the major groups of nomads most relevant to libraries is actually the techno-nomads, your real engineering types, people who know a lot about computers and technology, and they're on the road about it. You know, you'll have
0: your computer scientists, your robot repair people. You're also going to have musicians and artists commonly in this group, although they have some basic tech skills also. The techno-nomads are a diverse group. They tend to have tattoos at
1: a higher rate than the other nomad groups. And many of them are ephemeralists. They believe that things shouldn't last forever. Now, again, not all techno-nomads are like this, but many of them are. They think there's a certain value to things disappearing and going away, and so they have a ideological opposition to the massive library system that the world of Wrongtopia has implemented and matured over time.
0: Within the Wrongtopia ethical code, it's sort of considered that you would have to grow the library and have the library never shrink. So the ephemeral school of thought born out of the techno nomads, they posed this challenge to it and said, perhaps libraries shouldn't be retained indefinitely because history needs to be engaged with in order to maintain contemporary use. If you, for example, forget what words used to mean and you read them in new context, the knowledge is decaying there. So they would argue, no, this isn't about getting rid of old information. This is about making sure that information is engaged with enough that it retains its relevancy. The stale collection of information has the cold stench of death on it. The re-engagement and churning of old information is what's vibrant and lifeful.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very small subsection that actively wants to destroy as much information as possible. Most of the ephemeralists see them as kind of not really part of the organization, though most others do group them In within them but they kind of see it as like you're prisoners of the past and the more information you have the more you're locked down by that in some way they want to be totally spontaneous born of nothing it's a kind of a fanciful notion that they want to reinvent everything in every moment
0: there is a small group of anti-library extremists and their ideology is nothing short than a total churn as you're saying while we engage critically with ephemeralism and what it means for the library science of wrongtopia, we really have to put a firm line there and say like, no, we're not gonna give into these these radical anti-library extremist demands.
1: Yeah, burn all the libraries every two years, a two year churn cycle. Imprison
0: librarians, train them into other things. It's just extreme. And actually, interestingly, there's been a tension between these regional groups, these wealthier stationaries that have run public campaigns advocating for the usufruct libraries at the center of the city states to be distributed to the local people there rather than have these nomads coming through using all of our speedboats, increasing the wait list, all this stuff like that. Our city state needs our library for us, not for everyone coming through the town. And some of these anti-library extremists, at one point, even teamed up with these stationary redistributivists on a campaign because they're so fundamentally against the idea of a library. And they attribute all this stuff to, and there's some validity to it. And it's, it's you know to pick apart the truth and false here, but they identify library socialism and the the usufruct city-state system as the source of inequality and climate change. And I don't think that we can completely brush that off. I mean, these library systems are some of the largest users of resources sources in Rongtopia, and it's a finite planet the people of Rongtopia haven't been stewarding responsibly so there's an argument there but the tactics they take are so extreme and they don't seem to make the problem any better
1: yeah no i think the less extreme view on that issue which i believe is more credible is that yes libraries as they currently exist on wrongtopia the sort of usufruct libraries of things are currently being operated in an unsustainable way but that doesn't mean that they could never be operated in a sustainable way and that it's a failure of imagination to say that because they're currently causing climate change we must destroy them or completely get rid of the system rather than altering the system to say only produce as many speedboats as is sustainable.
0: And I've got a bit of a cultural retention bias, I'll grant you that, but shouldn't we retain the libraries in the transition to a much better society where we tackle these pressing issues of climate change and inequality that exist even in our idyllic utopia, wrongtopia? I think so. But these extremists, they say they want total freedom from the past, not even to engage the past, but to just completely abolish it. It's disturbing.
1: Maybe we'll just take a quick moment to thank the wrongtopia central library. Of course, that's where we're broadcasting this from. They've provided all the resources for us to learn about this history and present it to you and broadcast it. Uh, They also got me interested in broadcasting in the first place when I kind of came here and saw others doing it. Like, oh, that looks cool. I want to try it. That all happened here at this library for me.
0: Yeah. like the library is such an incredible social space where people can sort of self-actualize, connect with history. And it's just anti-library extremists. You know, I hate to say it, but I'm just not sure their ideas should be retained.
1: Now that's extreme. They should be retained, but always in the context of A mistake we want to avoid in the future.
0: No, they're pushing us, man. I think we got to draw the line. If you act this way about ideas, like, we're not going to retain your ideas. We're going to stack you up. Yeah, but that's just
1: giving in to them. Then you're becoming what you hate in order to fight what you hate.
0: Do
1: you you smell something burning? I do smell something burning. Oh, oh. God. Oh, that's the fire alarm. Okay. Uh, <coughs> that's a lot of smoke. Is this the uh, library burning down? They, uh, no. They
0: set fire to it, man.
1: No, they well, couldn't. I
0: warned you. I was just saying. But there's so many precious
1: irreplaceable texts in <laughs> we this building. Get
0: out. I want to grab a, one of these priceless texts. No, screens. no,
1: you're priceless, too. You know, it. save yourself. Oh, thanks.
0: You're priceless. Doing this show been an honor for ending. Feed connection lost. Sorry for the inconvenience. The feed should return soon feed connection lost
1: sorry for the inconvenience the feed should return soon i guess that's the episode it was cut short i mean i guess it makes sense why that was the library is well, burning down yeah.
0: that is a good episode of wrongtopia history yeah it was really good <laughs> you're like come for? you're like i want the history and then it's like boom history is actually happening like, yeah before and, like, and i don't
1: even want to knock the first part because just telling the that was really great too but mm-hmm. then also to see it come alive it was yeah, like to have just it come alive like that wow yeah incredible i bet this episode of wrongtopia history is going to go down in wrongtopia history like in the future they could even do it next week so
0: there's like a real mourning that comes from contemplating the burning of the library of alexandria I thought about having it like a debt of mourning because of the loss of biodiversity, because of the loss of the Library of Alexandria and countless other libraries through history, mm. because of all these profound, unimaginable, cumulative losses. I'm not advocating that people just suddenly get very sad for a long time <laughs> right, to, to make like, up for it. it.
1: <laughs> the thing I feel when I think about the Library of Alexandria burning, it reminds me of death. Because it's like, when I think about myself dying in the future, the thing that like, I wouldn't even say scares me about that, but the feeling of like emptiness or like the fear of oblivion or like that, just that sense of (laughs) gone-ness, disintegration, the existing no longer. And when I think about works of literature existing no longer, when I think about unique species existing no longer It connects to the same sort of internal emotional pathways as, like, contemplating my own mortality.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, the connection to the complexity of a full library having some sort of overlap with, like, life and the experience of life. And, like, I think a big part of what's sad about when a person dies is, like, the permanent loss of something the spark of an individual human, like their vibrancy, like what makes them who they are and their relationships to the people around them. Yeah, their uniqueness and their
1: quirks. And and all
0: the potentiality that they carry, all the input that they could have had into the world and society and other people's lives being ended is very similar to the loss of historical texts or the loss of languages, like languages that no one speaks anymore. Like there's a profound sadness there this like palpable death to it because mm-hmm. we're losing ways to understand ourselves and losing ways to understand ourselves is as bad as the loss of animal life it's in as bad as the loss of individuals it's all the same sort of thing it's all the same sort of creeping death and it'd be a villain who would want to actualize the burning of libraries yeah
1: yeah it's i think i had a word this oh it's like seeding something to the inevitable like the heat death of the universe like the end of all things it's like yeah and so like when i think about the idea of wanting to retain information wanting to retain the uniqueness of individuals for as long as possible uh, life extension technologies when i think about wanting to retain biodiversity and the different kinds of species on the planet it's like little victories against the inevitable heat death of the universe it's little stays stays of execution
0: biodiversity is always going to fluctuate and we're always going to sometimes lose texts, but we can do our best to push against Those sort of forces. I almost want to call it like a type of progress when you compare a small library to a big and more extensive library that contains more information, especially usable information about the human condition. The second library, the larger one, the more useful library, the more complete library, that increase in complexity and retention of experience and shared experience and communication from the past to the future is so. Profound, and that same sort of information exists in the biosphere, where there's so much detail to analyze. There's so much to understand about the world that we live on and where we come from.
1: Yeah, no, too, and like I think about technology as well, and how that's similar. It's this collective history we have of applied human innovation, and these things like our knowledge and information stores kind of builds and complexifies. And you can see that happening with first really crude rudimentary tools to like more formalized tools, mechanization, and like information technologies, computers, that kind of stuff. It's like building on top of itself and complexifying, and it requires the retention of all the layers below it to sustain this complexity and this, this beauty, this edifice and thing that you have requires the retention of everything that came before it. Like if we were to lose the ability to make engines right now, like everyone forgot, like it would be a real loss. It would be a loss of a way of humans interacting with the world. It would blunt the ways that humans can interact with the world.
0: Another thing we can think of as related to libraries, research libraries and lending libraries as embodiments of social progress is the sort of concept of expanding to include our conception of our history to reflect a wide base of social movements like as we seek to actualize library socialism that we see library socialism as part of the same tradition which has been this sort of like struggling of people against hierarchy and oppression unbearable inhuman conditions imposed on them by other people and imposed on them by chance and environment cashing the check that's been written by all these different moments in history, all these different, movements and sub-ideologies that were all based around the concept of universal human emancipation and then creating the context where the time is right to actualize human emancipation according to a well-developed theory of what universal human emancipation would actually look like so when the transition is happening we know exactly what we're aiming for and we have experimental evidence to show that it works that to me is connected with this idea of retention it's the opposite of the loss of the library of alexandria It uses all the same principles that make that so horrible except
1: inverted. I love that idea of the trajectory there and of expanding to include things from the past, like keeping elements of all these different ideologies and and bringing them together, like culminating them in the realization of something that includes all of it. And it makes me think about the way this episode came out and how we talked about our trajectories politically, like going through various stages of our life and arriving at this and the Framings and ideas we have now are all related to our past and the ways we're talking about things now have expanded to include both all of what we were as well as the new influences. In a similar way, we each are these sort of like complexifying records of our own history that culminate in what we are now.
0: We have a desire to not acknowledge the developmental trajectory of our political opinions. Like There's this sort of political culture a lot of the time of acting like you came forward with fully formed ideas. Mm-hmm. And I definitely get the urge to like not share embarrassing things about your political trajectory, and also the urge to be embarrassed by a disproportionate amount of things. I feel like I haven't really shared anything super embarrassing about my past this episode. But part of what makes me who I am today, and this would be embarrassing if it wasn't so long ago, was like a really, really pointed 13-year-old atheism, completely web-enabled
1: and then brought into real life, brought to church. I was a like super pointed atheist in my early 20s. So if you're 13, I'd you know it's less embarrassing than me. Yeah, if it
0: was more recent, I probably wouldn't have evoked it so easily. But in any case, this this history is what makes us who we are in the present. We can acknowledge that we are developing, we have the capacity to be wrong, and so on. Obviously, it's not something you want to start every conversation with, it's just like, hey, just so you know, I'm developing. I have <laughs> the capacity to be wrong. <laughs> These aren't fully finished ideas. I haven't known them since I was born. I learned them from other people. I might misremember something here and there. I'm totally willing to receive negative feedback if it's done in a friendly way. You know, you don't want to start every conversation like that. But how do you embody that and also sort of acknowledge and pull on your own history? Cash the metaphorical checks of the promise of liberation within your own life. How do you do that?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a big topic. That's a, like, absolutely. Honestly, but
0: <laughs> yeah, and this check metaphor, I don't know, I think Walter Benjamin said it, but this financial metaphor, it's like investing, invest in your future. Cashing
1: the check. Yeah, no, like uh, bearing the fruit, eating the fruit. The
0: fruit. Yeah, <laughs> harvest <laughs> the fruit. We need to harvest the fruit of the patch that our ancestors have been tending for generations.
1: Yeah, it's such a better metaphor, too, because checks, you cash them once and then you cashed it. That's it. But fruit is perennial, like it keeps coming. I guess checks could be perennial, too, if they kept coming.
0: Yeah, I don't know. These super pernicious and ever-present hyper-financial metaphors are probably part of the ideological fishbowl of neoliberal capitalism that we're swimming in and if we can replace them with ecological or farming or anthropological metaphors it's probably preferable.
1: Yeah, so- especially now it's pointed in the process of the change. I think ultimately we could expand to include all kinds of metaphors but rather than being all pervasive financial metaphors would carry a specific connotation of you're invoking lack and scarcity and like all the things that we see as pervasive in our current society wouldn't be pervasive. So they'd be more useful as metaphors in that limited context in the future.
0: So friends, it's time to harvest the fruit that was planted during the French Revolution, to harvest the fruit that was planted in Haiti, in Cuba, in Soviet Russia, the fruit that was planted in the Winnipeg General Strike, the fruit that was planted in every strike, in every workplace organizing, in every tenants' union, the fruit that's planted... When people speak up against cruelty and abuse, the fruit that was planted by our ancestors that struggled and toiled to bring us the world that we have today, we should actualize and, and harvest that fruit. They work so hard to bring us. We have a responsibility to actualize the planted fruit.
1: Actualize the planted fruit. Yeah, that's great. That's a catchy slogan.
0: Yeah, I think it's a pretty catchy slogan. Uh,
1: Do you want to put on some nice uh, boots? uh, Get a a hat It's sunny out there. I want to get heat struck and we'll go harvest fruit, actualize some fruit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's actualize some fruit. This has been the Seriously Wrong Podcast. Great to talk to you. Great to hope to hear from you soon.
1: Yeah, we're going to be picking fruit here for the next little bit, but we will be back with another episode in about a week, a little more.
0: Big thanks to everyone who is donating to us on PayPal and Patreon keeps the show going. We got a very special patrons only series on Revolution. The reason the show exists is the generosity of people who chip in. It's massively appreciated. Can't say that enough. And thank you, everyone who's already doing that.
1: We just had Brett, the host of Revolutionary Left Radio and Red Menace on there to give us the lowdown on Marxism-Leninism. And we really drill into some of those strategies. And we talk a lot about the ethics of revolutionary violence. Check it out. It's a great episode.
0: As always, you can use the contact form on our website to give us feedback. And please leave reviews across the internet and tell people we exist and tweet about us and stuff. It's super helpful and we love you and have a good week i would check you out from the library next time on Seriously Wrong, what became of Wrongtopia's library socialism and the threat of the techno-nomad anti-library extremists?
1: This just in, Wrongtopia News Report the president of Wrongtopia has given in to the extremist, ephemeralist, techno-nomad demands. In exchange for their agreeing to no longer continue their campaign of blowing up and burning down central libraries across Wrongtopia, they have instituted a legal 50-year churn where any literature or text or information that are not actively engaged with and republished in the span of 50 years will be destroyed the implementation of the 50-year churn is
0: just one of a multi-tier package of concessions that were given to the anti-library extremists as part of the settlement the president also appeared on television to say that libraries are bad and that they should all be taken down and said that the arc of history bends towards libraries ceasing to exist Analysts are saying that this was a brilliant 3D chess move, taking the wind out of his opponent's sails by reinforcing their key messages, but taking ownership of them. We actually, in the studio, have an expert who is saying that this is perfect 3D chess and the 50-year churn in practice is not actually going to be a 50-year churn and the extremists have been played. Dr. Davis, can you expand on this?
1: Well, first of all, I just want to reiterate how great of a strategy it always is to just kind of take on your opponent's goals and messaging and claim them as your own. It's like you totally win that way. But more than that, the people who are worrying about works older than 50 years actually being destroyed I think can take heart in the fact that the massive archivist community on Wrongtopia is now organizing the most expansive collaborative effort to continuously engage with all texts that has ever been conceived of or attempted to be implemented. Now, as you know, there are billions, approaching trillions of texts in the Wrongtopia digital expansive library. And to keep all of these texts from being churned every 50 years, they will need to be engaged with, republished with new introductions, new analysis, at least once every 50 years. This is a massive undertaking. It's going to take the work of millions, if not billions, of scholars dedicating their life let's not forget after they've been engaged with and republished with new introductions and stuff that technically counts in some senses as a new version of the text that then needs to be engaged with again. And it's cumulatively built like that. It's a massive and ever-expanding undertaking that I think the people of Rongtopia are up to. And I think ultimately, the implementation of this technical 50-year churn is going to introduce a vibrancy to Rongtopia's intellectual life that honestly was lacking when books were allowed to just sit on a shelf and exist but not come alive
0: so there you have it what seemed like a bitter concession to one's enemies was actually an extreme 40 chess move that defeats the enemies by fulfilling their goals oh we've just gotten word that the president of Rongtopia has given his political enemies a 10 million dollar grant to pursue their political objectives another part of the puzzle falls into place you don't have to worry about the anti-library extremists anymore. They've been pacified with a concession. That's the end of the news. <laughs> news over. Yeah, roll the news credits. You know, the people on the news don't get enough credit. Yeah, behind the scenes
1: on the news. Oh, yeah. People reading the news. Depends on who they are. Local affiliates? Meh. National. Oh, yeah. Love those news givers.